0: For those who don't who are visiting, just tell us um, how long you've been at the church and what do you do uh, Monday to Friday when you're not here in church?
1: Um, pretty much been church church most of my life, apart from a few uh, little forages up to Newcastle and Birmingham to do training and degree and things. Um, that would that'd be about it, wouldn't it, Mum and Dad? They're sitting there at the back. <laughs> Can't think of anything. Um, and what I do during the week, I'm a clinical psychologist. So I work with people with um, head injuries uh, three days a week. And two days a week, I work on the Oxford training course for clinical psychologists. So,
0: training up future clinical psychologists. Give, give us um, a snapshot of what it's like being a Christian in that kind of environment. Um, in a way, clinical
1: psychology because it's um, quite all-encompassing. We like to see different sides of the stories. We like to kind of be able to kind of think about other people's perspectives. Um, p- clinical psychologists generally. Are, kind of quite interested in the fact that I'm a Christian, I I've got some Christian colleagues and if I'm talking about Christian things generally it's accepted as a, a, another interesting view on things and I suppose the challenge is to try to get beyond that for colleagues when I'm with patients it's very difficult to bring in um, my Christianity in, in an overt way um, only because that's not what I'm primarily there for, so it's more about when the opportunities do arise being able to be Kind of sensitive enough to be able to use the opportunity, but without kind of overstepping the boundaries of what I'm supposed to be there for.
0: And one one last question: Uh, We're leading the Explore course together on a Tuesday Mm. night. Just can you share with everyone uh, what is the Explore course? What are we doing, and how do you feel it's all been going? Uh, Hopefully, what we're doing is helping people to
1: explore the Christian message um, in a very open, relaxed environment, and to really to ask any questions that they people haven't really had answered um, over the. Course of their maybe Christian life, or maybe they're nowhere near a Christian life, but they're just interested to know what Christianity is about. So, it, for me, it kind of encompasses quite a wide range of potential opportunities from people that have been Christians a long, long time that want to refresh themselves in terms of some of the kind of central tenets of Christianity, but also people who have got no idea about Christianity and um, are brave enough to come along um, to investigate it with a whole load of other people that maybe. a bit further down that journey
0: yeah thanks I encourage you please do pray for us as we lead that and particularly pray for the group we've just got a really great group on a Tuesday night and we're really enjoying um, spending time together and learning together so do keep praying Uh, we're taking a break over half term and then we'll be back uh, next week anyway Nigel lovely to have you with us and uh, we look forward to you helping us now thank you thanks
1: so the reading for this evening will be coming from Luke chapter 20 verse 45 through to Luke 21, verse 4. So Luke twenty forty-five. through to Luke 21, verse 4. And then I want to briefly also quickly look at Luke 12 as a contrast to what we're about to read. So Luke 20, verse 45... While all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, Beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honours at banquets. But they devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. As he looked up, Jesus saw the rich putting their gifts into their temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. I tell you the truth, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all these others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. And if you just also turn to Luke 12, verses 16 to 21, we have Jesus telling a parable which is somewhat of a contrast to Luke 21, 1 to 4. So Luke twelve, sixteen to 21. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I've no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I'll store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? This is how it will be for anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich towards God. So just before looking at these two contrasting sets of verses and particularly this poor widow in Luke chapter 21 and thinking about this question that we have, how much should I give? I'm just going to tell you a little bit about when I visit Budgins uh, most days when I'm working at the head injury service. Just around the corner from me, about 100 yards, around the corner from the head injury clinic is Budgins. And that's where I go pretty much every day for my sandwich, my banana, Um, and I buy the Daily Telegraph. Pretty much every single time. I'm a creature of habit, as some people probably know, and it's usually sometime during the morning, I'll pop round to Budgeons, um, get those things. Occasionally, I might buy a bottle of wine if there's one on offer. Um, They do good offers on Budgeons, half price, not like Waitrose. That's a good place. Um, Sometimes I get that. Sometimes I get some anchovies for the one recipe that I do. (laughs) Let's not get bogged down in the details, though, because the, the point of this story is that once, probably about once a month, outside Budgeons there's a lady selling The Big Issue. And I think she's Eastern European, um, possibly Romanian, which would interest Dad. And she's there approximately once a month. And she's been there, same person, for probably two or three years now. And I've grown into the habit of buying The Big Issue from her, so much so that now it would feel uncomfortable if I didn't buy The Big Issue from her. She knows me, I say hello, I make a comment about the weather, I buy The Big Issue. I say, God bless you, that's my bit of evangelism along the way. And that's pretty much it. But if I was to analyze what happens when I turn the corner and I see the lady standing outside budgings, it's not I don't get an immediate positive feeling thinking, oh great, I've got an opportunity here to give to the needy. My immediate feeling, if I was brutally honest. It's a tiny negative feeling, just a little negative feeling of some money's going to go out of my account that would rather be in it. Um, and, and, and so it's not, it's, it's, it's not an overwhelming positive feeling that I have when I turn the corner and see the lady with a big issue, even though I know it's a good thing for me to be doing. I have some thoughts that go through my mind. I know it's a good thing for me to buy this big issue, to help this person in need. It's a good thing. I know it's the kind of thing that Jesus would want me to do. I'm aware of the parable of the sheeps and the goats and the fact that actually giving to somebody who's needy and poor is almost like giving to Jesus. But I also have other thoughts that flip through my mind. I can't help them. There's thoughts about, well, am I being a bit exploited here? Is this person just fleecing the system here and sending loads of money back to Romania like you hear in the, on the news, Daily Mail? And so there's, there's conflicting thoughts that go through my mind. Fortunately, my behavior is that I'm continuing at the moment to keep on giving £2.50 to this person. But my feelings, my thoughts, and my behavior are not all in line. And we might come back to that as we think about giving and how much should I give. Because what we have here, really, is two stories. We have two contrasting stories. We have a true story about this poor widow This poor widow has virtually nothing to live on. And she goes and she gives these two small copper coins. And these copper coins are about the lowest denominator of currency that you could have. They were sometimes called the thin one. They were so thin, virtually worthless. And these were all that she had. These are all that she had to live on. And in many ways, she did something stupid. She gave it all away to the temple treasury. She couldn't afford to do that. She went to a bank manager and said, this is what I've done today. You'd probably think she was a bit silly. And by many standards, you would say, well, that's just irresponsible. And yet Jesus praises this. She pra- he praises this. And then we have this contrasting story, this made-up story of Jesus, this parable. And you have something that, on one hand, seems doing something very sensible. He's preparing for the future, He's investing what he has for future, future things. He's, he's, got some, he's got a lot of stuff, but he wants to make sure that that maintains it in the future. He seems to be kind of sensible and prudent with his money, and yet he is rebuked. He is the one that says, You fall. You fall. And when I read these verses, and maybe you likewise, it can be quite uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable for me when I read the story of this poor widow giving everything she has to God. Because it feels to me like I'm a million miles away from that attitude a lot of the time, if not all the time. I can barely imagine giving everything I have to God and relying completely on him. But I'm not a million, million miles away from the parable. You'd only have to tweak that a little bit before I would start to be thinking, oh dear... That could be speaking to me. And this is not what Jesus is saying, but if Jesus was saying, look, he's a Christian person, and this Christian person lives in the fifth richest country in the world, in the most affluent time in history ever, and they live in one of the most affluent areas in one of the most richest countries in the world. They have a decent job. They have a decent disposable income. They've got a pension in place that's pretty okay they're even playing their direct debit of 10% every month to the church. It's a bit like their God tax. And then once all that's out of the way, this person just feels, well, I can do whatever I like with the rest of my money now. Got rid of all my obligations. The rest is mine to do what I like. That's not a million, million miles away from what Jesus is saying. And it's an attitude and a relationship with money that I think I can Start to identify with if I'm not too careful, and maybe we can. Because clearly, Jesus here is not interested in our money per se. If he was, those two small copper coins would be meaningless. God doesn't need our money. What he's interested in is our attitude to money, our relationship with money, the meaning that money has for us, and in that, in relation to God. Are we increasing a God centered? generous, sacrificial attitude towards our money? Or are we tending, maybe without even realising it, towards a more me-centred, self-indulgent one? And that's the contrast, I think, in these two accounts. Now, I'm going to tell you a story. You may have even heard this story before. It's of me, age 12. It might not even be true, um, but run with it anyway. Imagine me, age 12... Uh, I support the Queen's Park Rangers as I always have, and if you can barely imagine this, this is the true bit, Queen's Park Rangers at that time were one of the best teams in the world. They were fantastic. Top of the league, played beautiful football, a bit like Barcelona and Real Madrid combined. First division easily easily running away with it. We weren't the team that's languishing in the championship as we are now. They're a great team, and I support Queen's Park Rangers. And one of the great things about Queen's Park Rangers is that their away strip is just fantastic. It's red and black, red and black hoops. It looks really, really good. And I want one of these Queen's Park Rangers away strips, but they're quite expensive, 50 quid, something like that. Um, five children in the family, that's 250. if everybody's going to get one of those kinds of things. So I ask mum and dad, is there something I can do on a regular basis, and if I do it enough, then I'll get my Queen's Park Rangers waist strip. And mum says, Well, actually, what you could do, you could regularly do the washing up, and when you've done a certain amount, um, that'll be enough to go and get the away strip, Queen's Park Rangers, black and red hoops, fantastic. And immediately, my question to my mum is, How many times, how many times do I need to do the washing up in order to get the away strip? And that one question, that one question tells me something. It tells me, first of all, that washing up is unnatural and hard for me. It's not something my feelings tell me I want to do. So natural and hard, I'd rather not do it if I could. It also tells me, that question, that I want a rule, I want a law that tells me, what can I do the least of for the most reward? I want to do the least of this for the most reward. I want a rule, and then I'll obey that rule, and the contract will be fulfilled. And what it also tells me is that I'm not interested at all in being by nature a washer of dishes. I don't really want to be particularly characterised in my life by acts and attitudes of dishwashing. That's what it tells me, that one question, how many times do I have to do it? And in a sense, that's not that similar to maybe some of the questions that we ask about our giving. Why is Jesus interested in drawing our attention to money? Because he says some pretty radical and uncomfortable things when you hear what he says to some people about their money. Well, I think part of the reason is that money can be like a symbol or almost a crystallization, um, a kind of shorthand of other important areas in our lives. It's almost like it's a condensed version of the kind of power that we have. The more money we have, potentially the more power we have in our lives. It can be a shorthand and a crystallization of the self-reliance that we can have in our lives. It can be a shorthand for the independence that we have in our lives, we are by nature, our fallen nature, competitive and comparative creatures, unconsciously and consciously, to a greater or less extent. So the status, it can be bound up in status. It can be about attractiveness. It can be about value. But possibly most of all, it can be about security. It can be our attitude to where our security lies, a condensed version of that. So Jesus draws our attention In this account that we have of the widow and the account that we have of the rich man, of almost two stories that we can have in our lives about money. We can have a story in our lives that says, look, I've got money, I've kind of earned it, I have earned it, so kind of I deserve this money. Um, I've paid my debts, I've paid my obligations, I've paid my taxes, and it's now mine to spend and invest as I see fit. That's a fairly bog standard, I would say, attitude towards money in 21st century western culture but Jesus draws our attention in a way to this widow and there's another story the the story that says everything I am and everything I have comes from God the money that's in my pocket the money that's in my account is that which God has just allocated or lent to me it's lent to me to invest in good works for his glory It's God's money, it's my responsibility to use that to help the needy, to help the poor, to be able to demonstrate God's love to others in acts of loving kindness. Therefore, God's money should be held lightly. I should be able to give generously. And these are two contrasting stories that we can have about money. And we may be edging towards one, or rather in our lives as we speak. But this second story is exemplified in this widow, this widow that gives everything. She's poor, but she has she gives everything that she has to live on. It's exemplified by that social outcast who's swindling money off people, the tax collector, Zacchaeus, who when he encounters Jesus, he immediately says, I'm going to give half of everything I have to the poor. It's exemplified by that woman, the woman that had the perfume that costs over a year's wages. Chanel 2050, Chanel 5,080, whatever that perfume was, over a year's wages to pay for that perfume. She anoints Jesus' feet before his crucifixion. And she's commended for it. That story is exemplified by those kinds of people. It's exemplified by this widow. And as Christians... We're to ask for the Holy Spirit's help to strengthen and thicken that God-gives story. That God-gives story in relation to money. money. We need to weaken and thin out that story, the I have story. Because the generosity that God is after actually frees us. It frees us up from being tyrannized by what we want in our lives. It frees us from the tyranny of the self-delusion of self-reliance and self-security. There is no self-reliance and self-security. Everything we have and are comes from God. And sometimes I think we want a God that's kind of kind and indulgent so that we can be indulged. But we don't. We have a God of fierce love, a God of appalling goodness, and that requires us to become more and more like him. So it's our attitude and our relationship and the meaning of money in our lives that Jesus wants to draw our attention to. However, as I come back to my encounter with the lady with the big issue, feelings, thoughts, attitudes may not always be in line this side of heaven. Often not for me. We want a rule. Well, Jesus actually, I don't think, ever really comments on a general rule for giving apart from once, and that's in Matthew 23, verse 23. I think it's the only time that Jesus comments on the general rule of giving, bearing in mind that there is the tithe of the Old Testament, the tithe that everybody is aware of in this culture. He says, woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill and cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. It's almost Jesus is saying, well, okay, okay, if you need a rule to get you started, it's not about rules, but if you need a rule to get you started, that 10% is a good place to start. It mustn't stop there. It mustn't stop there. It's not that dissimilar, I think, to when Jesus tells us about forgiveness. And Peter says, well, should I forgive somebody seven times? And Peter was being generous there, because there were rabbis that interpreted the Old Testament and said, look, just just forgive three times and that's your lot. You've done what you need to do. There are some very generous rabbis who say, no, it needs to be seven times. What does Jesus say? 77 times seven. I want an attitude of forgiveness. I want an attitude of forgiveness. So this strengthening, this story about our our giving, is strengthening that bigger story, about being perfect, we're told to be perfect, to sin no more. And of course we need the Holy Spirit's help. Like how, can we, how can we progress along that journey without the Holy Spirit's help? But it may be at times that our behavior has to lead the way. The behavior leads the way of the attitudes and the feeling. Acts of the will, through our behavior, leads the way for our attitudes and our feeling. And coming back to the big issue and my conflicts of giving my £2.50 that I can easily afford. So I've given this lady £2.50 pretty much once a month for the last few years. It's two weeks before Christmas. It's now £3, the big issue, because it's a Christmas special. You can imagine my feelings to that, can't you? I give my three pounds, I comment on the weather, I say, God bless you, and she hands me an envelope. I walk away, I open the envelope, and there's a cheap Christmas card in it. That's very nice, I feel guilty immediately, I haven't bought her a Christmas card. And inside this Christmas card, there's this little photocopied bit of paper. And it has some writing on it. And the writing on this photocopied piece of paper is Psalm 41. And it says, Psalm 41, verse 1, Blessed is he that considereth the poor. The Lord will deliver him in time of trouble. And just for a moment, just for a brief period of time, my feelings, my attitude, and my behavior were in line. I had the feeling that actually I had done something for God here. This, this, was, a, this was a God thing that I'd been involved in. My begrudging £2.50 Three pounds, not more than probably 40 quid over the whole year. And yet, that changed that. Just knowing that that might have been a small part of doing God's work. Very briefly, my feelings, my behaviour, and my attitude were in line. So, God is interested in our attitude, He's interested in our relationship with money possibly because it may be a shorthand, a crystallization of other important areas of our lives. He wants through the Holy Spirit for for, for our God-gives story to be stronger and stronger and stronger. He wants that I-have story to be weaker and weaker and weaker in our life. Because the more we are the God-gives story, the more we are generous, it's going to free us from the tyranny of the delusion of self-reliance and self-security. And it's almost if they're saying, well, well, I need a rule to get me going. I'm so far away from that journey. Well, okay, 10%. That's a good place to start. But don't stop there. I just want to finish by um, reading a little quote of C.S. Lewis because everybody expects me to, and it's appropriate in this case. Um, Not always is. Um, And this is C.S. Lewis talking about morality, duty, and those kinds of things. I think it's very applicable. He's not specifically talking about giving money here, but it applies to that in terms of a sense of duty, rules, and things like that at times. He says this, I think all Christians would agree with me if I said that though Christianity seems at first to be all about morality, all about duties and rules and guilt and virtue, yet it leads you on, out of all that, into something beyond One has a glimpse of a country where they don't talk of these things except perhaps as a joke. Everyone there is filled full with what we would call goodness, just as a mirror is filled with light. But they don't call it goodness. They don't call it anything. They're not even thinking of it. They're too busy looking at the source from which it comes. But this is near the stage where the road passes over the rim of our world. No one's eyes can see very far beyond that. Lots of people's eyes can see further than mine. And I think C.S. Lewis would agree that this widow's eyes were very far-sighted. Amen.
0: I guess after hearing a talk like that and reflecting on our own lives and giving. Um, I don't actually want to say anything now. I think it's good just for God's spirit to touch our hearts and to keep teaching us. So why don't you just take a few moments um, we don't use a rattle for a service. Take a few moments to read back through uh, those stories that um, Nigel was helping us to see um, from Luke's gospel and back in chapter 12 as well. And just take a few moments on your own to reflect on what God has been saying to you through that. It might be that he's been giving you a bit of a kick and urging you to do something you're not currently doing. It might be that he's just encouraging you to carry on what you are doing. Let's just take a moment of quiet to reflect on your own. The hymn we're going to close with is uh, a great older hymn, Take My Life and Let It Be Consecrated All to Thee. And I guess uh, one of the great challenges in, in, in this verse is taking our lives and giving it all to God. And that can be difficult. I just want to read to us, uh, just to illustrate this, a lovely little picture of the kind of generosity that we were being challenged and helped to think about. Uh, just reflect on this before we sing this great hymn to close. Uh, Paul's writing to the church in Corinth, and he says, Now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. We often think of grace being perhaps a help in times of trouble. But the grace he's particularly speaking here as I mentioned earlier, beginning of the service, is the grace of giving. Giving is a grace of God. And this is the amazing picture. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. And then he goes on in verse seven. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness and in your love for us. See that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the eagerness of others. For, you know, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich Yet for your sakes he became poor so that through his poverty we might become rich. Friends that is the gospel motivation to want to be generous with our whole lives including our wallets because God has given us everything. So let's stand and sing this hymn together to encourage each other in the graces of giving and to declare our desire to want to go into this week and honour God with all that he has given us. Shall we stand and sing together?